You're listening to Further Faster in association with Montaigne, the podcast that asks ultra athletes, mountaineers, and explorers the why and the how. Hello, and welcome to the second monthly podcast of Further Faster in association with Montaigne. So this is the podcast that takes an in-depth dive into why endurance athletes, mountaineers and explorers do what they do. In it, we set out to discover what kind of mindset it takes to achieve world first, to win 100 mile races and to go places that no one has been before. And in this episode, it's a good one. We talked to an alpinist called Malcolm Bass. Now, Malcolm specialises in first ascents in the Great Ranges, uh, new winter routes in Scotland, and all really impressive feats. But what sets Malcolm really apart, and this is why he's the perfect guest for our show, is that he's also a clinical psychologist. So, as I discovered in my chat, he offers a really deep insight in what compels mountaineers to continue climbing and at times take really great risks. It's really fascinating. Listen in. Okay, so Malcolm, thank you for joining us to the Further Faster podcast. What we try to do is get to the bottom of what you do and why you do it and maybe a bit of advice that you can pass on. So what we know, you're an alpinist, uh, you've climbed in Alaska, China, India, um, and you're heading out to, heading out in May to India to attempt a new hey, route? Yeah, heading out in a frighteningly short period of time, looking at the state of organisation of my kids. <laughs> right, okay, maybe this is something we should talk about. <laughs> In about in about four weeks time to India. Yeah, oh, to wow. the Indian Himalaya or the Indian East Karakoram. Um oh, wow. so e- even this close to us heading off, we're still not absolutely sure what peak we're going for. Oh right, um, okay. Um, one of the one of the big challenges about the, the this kind of climbing is actually getting a permit to go to the peak that you want to go to. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so all all the Himalayan and Karakoram countries um, mm. have some kind of permitting system. Right. India, Pakistan, China, Nepal, like the countries you mentioned. Uh-huh. And some peaks are harder to get a permit for than others. Um, right. So our, our plan A is a beautiful peak called Remo 3. Yeah. Um, but it's in the Indian East Karakoram. So it's kind of in the contested area between Pakistan and India. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. getting permits to go there. Although you can, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a lottery really as to whether you get them. And when you, if you do get them, you'll get them about three weeks before you go. Oh, that sounds uh, stressful. <laughs> it is quite stressful, yeah. So the the way to deal with that stress is to have a, a plan B. So we've got another beautiful peak to go for in India, which is much easier to get a permit for. And we're going to decide it's a bit of brinksmanship really. When are we going okay. to draw the line on waiting for the remo permit? For going yeah. To oh blimey, gosh! Yeah. Um, but it'll work. It'll be good, whichever. We've got two two beautiful objectives. So good, fantastic. Um, and you're also a clinical psychologist, which is extra good for this podcast. Um, so I, I, I don't know which area you you, you kind of working with clinical psychology, but what we were um, talking yeah. talk about a little bit is. Maybe a bit of the psychology behind the climbing and, you know, the the, the, the climbing yeah. that you do and we talk about the psychological factors and the social factors and all this all this of climbing as well. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of that stuff. It's really interesting. Great, L- lots of juicy lots of juicy stuff to get into. Um, and you've also done some caving in your life, which we'll touch upon. Um, and finally, you're the chair of a committee that awards the Montaigne Alpine Climbing Club Fund Grant, which is a yes. bit of a mouthful. But... <laughs> snappy, snappy title. That. We might need to rename it at some point. <laughs> yeah. Typically referred to just as the MACCF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, e- equally uh, snappy, yeah. 
but that's a yeah, that's a, a Montaigne's been very generous in matching the funding that the Alpine Club puts up, um, right. and so that's a grant available to Alpine Club members mm-hmm. um, who are planning to go and uh, climb or attempt to climb new routes or new peaks in the Great Ranges. Right. Um, okay. And so that, that being a member of the Alpine Club isn't necessarily a huge bar. You do have to join the Alpine Club, mm-hmm. but at the, um, to be a, an aspirant member of the Alpine Club, you don't have to have a huge Alpine CV already. Right. You have to be a climber, um, yeah. but you can join as an aspirant without a huge CV, um, and you can get uh, you, you, you can get a grant in uh, okay. from there. Keep so yeah, uh, we've just it's an exciting time in the in the, in the climbing uh, fund grant because we've just awarded. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head about, uh-huh. about seven or eight grants. So, uh, oh wow! Yeah, okay. Montaigne will just be announcing those shortly. The recipients know. Who oh, them, we should get a scoop, that. really. Maybe, yeah. maybe we'll know by the time this podcast comes out. Right. <laughs> um, so, we're gonna, like I say, is it an in-depth chat, and you know, just kind of keep it going. But what? Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you first get into climbing? Was there, we, you know, were you a sporty kid? Were you always climbing trees and? uphills and things i was always climbing trees and uphills but mm-hmm. i wasn't really a sporty kid um right. i didn't don't really feel i sort of particularly got into climbing at any one particular point i was, I was thinking about this for, for, the, for the podcast yeah but i think from it felt like from the moment i was born or the moment i was conscious um that the, the, the best the best, most compelling ways to spend your life was to go and have various adventures of various sorts. Yeah, I sort of never really reflected on it. It almost it, it seemed innate. Right. Um, didn't really matter what sort of adventures, whether they were like in the sea or mm-hmm. on trees or hills, caves. All of these things I was just immensely drawn to. Right. Um, I bet you were a handful for your parents. <laughs> I suspect. I suspect I was a bit. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so and my family are quite adventurous, uh, so we were just always talking about these kind of things. Um, and I just, I just, my, my my impression was that that was what most of life should be about: right. going off and doing these kind of things, and just occupied a huge amount of my consciousness. Uh-huh. Uh, was was there kind of one one climb, maybe a, a little bit older, one one moment where you thought, "This is what I want to be dedicating my." you know, my life to, is it, is it, was it, was the one thing that you thought, this is it, or is it just uh, a uh, gradual process? No, no, there, there wasn't really a, a, a this is it type moment, mm-hmm. and it all, it was all quite undifferentiated in my mind, and really probably till I was about, and caving was the first thing I, when I was 18, was the first thing I specifically focused on, yeah. up until then I was just doing anything I could out in the, out in the hills, um, mm-hmm. I'd done some rock climbing, uh, I was, my, my dad took me rock climbing. Yeah, I don't know what age that would be on on some dubious piece of rope um, okay, okay. somewhere around the edge of the North Yorkshire Moors. Uh, <laughs> really, I really enjoyed that. Um, and then when I was twelve, uh, there's a little trip from school where uh, two teachers took three of us to North Wales mm-hmm. uh, for like a long weekend. Um, yeah. When I when when I think back, I suspect their major motivation was to have their petrol and stuff paid for for the trip down to right. down to North Wales. <laughs> um, but it, it was a it was a it was a brilliant little trip, and we climbed on uh, Milestone Buttress and in Cumidwell, uh right. places like that. And that was the first time I encountered multi-pitch rock climbing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And 
and uh, it wasn't. You asked about being a sporty kid. I wasn't yeah. that much, that good at formal sports at school. Mm. I, I, I was enthused by them. I tried really hard. Right. Okay. <laughs> I was never much good. Um, <laughs> I liked them. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but on on one of the climbs on there on, on milestone buttress, I, I still remember this. Now there's there's kind of like a hand traverse. Uh, I don't know if you've done. I think it. I can't remember the name of the route. It's a, a diff or a v diff. The, mm. the sort of the the entry-level route on Milestone Buttress. Yeah. Um, and there's a hand traverse near the top, and I've, I've just done this hand traverse, and as I got across it, the, one of the teachers said, ah, oh, you're a natural, Malcolm. Um, and that kind of stuck in my head, I think, because that was the first time anybody had said that <laughs> to me about anything sporting. <laughs> <laughs> so you grasped onto it, that. It, it's <laughs> not strictly true of my rock climbing either, but I, I chose to believe it at the time. Um, Did you think... What, but you you were clearly attracted to, you know that kind of thing, that climbing and and what have you. What was the was it a sense of achievement that you felt when you were doing it, or was it something a bit more, you know, you felt you were good at it, and you know what what, what was kind of going uh, on at that it? age? When yeah, you're talking that about age. that age. Yeah. Um, no, it was it was even sort of uh, deeper, I suppose, than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it felt like it just matched my personality. Right, uh, okay. just to be going off into the hills, having some kind of adventure, there yeah. being some element of challenge to it. Right. Um, it. I felt drawn to it at a really innate level, in, intuitive type level. I wasn't wasn't noticing the rewards I got from it. Right, okay. Uh, just being pu- pulled into it. Um, and I think thinking about it now, I think I've probably got a, um, I mean, obviously as a clinical psychologist, one of the opportunities you get is to think about personality. Um, yeah your own and, and other people's mm-hmm. um and there is a there is a kind of personality type which is is very curious and exploratory yeah um and i, I think luckily for me i have that personality okay. type yeah. um so you 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 almost don't need once you have one of those particular personality types that is um driving you pushing you encouraging you in a certain mm-hmm. uh direction it you, you don't need specific rewards to benefit from it. Right. You, you, just, keep, you just keep moving in that way. Okay. I'm, I'm making sense of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. So I think I have that, that, kind of, that kind of curious, exploratory uh, side to my personality. Right. And so when I'm doing something that's exploratory, that's going into new places, mm-hmm. I feel excited, I feel comfortable. If I feel afraid, it feels a worthwhile level of fear okay. it, it just feels the right place for me to be yeah uh, and I feel very at ease with myself and at ease with other people around me when mm-hmm. I'm in those kind of settings I mean up, up to a certain point to where it gets super scary uh, yeah um, uh, and then, then it kind of flips a bit but uh, yeah, yeah uh, well I mean that, that was that was my that was my next question really it was is is that kind of that sense of exploring and traveling to new places and seeing new things and wanting to do new routes which is uh, you know something that you're yeah. particularly keen on um does is that combined with a an idea of risk as well i mean is is it do, do, do you think the risk threshold is different for somebody with a similar personality type yes um okay. because how much risk we take in anything we do in our lives, like whether it's social risk or physical risk, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, we're weighing up the potential benefits of that course of action against the potential harms. Right. Um, sometimes we're weighing those up. If we're feeling calm and not too emotional, we're, we're weighing those up 
uh, with a cold, you know, with a cool head. Yeah. Um, at other times, our emotions are hijacking us and we're making inaccurate uh, judgments about that balance of risk. Okay. Um, but because, yeah, so you, you, to go back to your question, because I've got that kind of curious exploratory mindset, I'm prepared to accept a much higher level of risk for rewards that feel very compelling to me, but um, <laughs> right, okay. might not feel very compelling to anybody else. Yeah. Um, and I think the extreme of this, and what I'm sort of uh, chuckling about to myself, is thinking about some of the risks we took to find incredibly grotty bits of cave passage in the Yorkshire Dales. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we would know, we'd have a sense that this piece of cave passage, which was flat out, you mm-hmm. know, flat out crawling, half filled with water, and unlikely to go anywhere other than another 50, 50 metres of the same, yeah. um, we'd push ourselves incredibly hard and take a degree of risk uh, moving through you know, sections where there was very low airspace, not much air to breathe. The reversibility of it um, was yeah. dubious. Oh. So, you, you, so you can see the kind of... That's, that's quite a high level of risk for yeah. a reward that to most people would seem paltry. Yes. <laughs> very paltry. Um, that, that, I, I put me in that category. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think most of the world is probably in that category, and probably quite rightly so. Um, but but because of my personality type, our personality type, mm-hmm. the fact that if you did crawl around this next crawl, crawler, corner yeah. Yeah. and see another twenty meters of passage before that nobody else had ever been in, yeah. um, nobody else had ever seen, no light had ever shone there. That was huge. Right. Uh, so we were prepared to take the risks. I mean, that's one of the things that drives you, seeing something that... It's new roots, isn't it? It's, it's, it's wanting to be... Tre- tre- treading where no one else has tread and seeing things that no one else... Has, from a perspective that no one else has seen. Is that right? Is that, would that oh. say that's your overriding kind of um, factor for doing it? Yes, uh, that's definitely the strongest. Right. Um, and second after that comes the uh, kind of exploring yourself while doing that. Okay, uh, okay. I suppose it's the same thing of curiosity, really. Yeah. But uh, when you put yourself in, in, in those kind of situations, you discover a lot about yourself. Right, uh, okay. And, and so I'm often excited by the idea of thinking, how would I cope on that particular ice face? Right. To, what, what would it be like to be me three, three days up that route at about oh. 6,500 metres in oh. that particular position? Yeah. How, how would I deal with that? Right. And then it's interesting to discover how you do deal with it, um, and, and then the the, end, uh, the thing about alpine climbing is the endless opportunities to actually get better at it. So each time I come back, I think, oh, we could have done that a bit better. Could have done this this a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it is, it's really exciting to think there's, there's so many opportunities to improve on what you've done last time. But but you're right, the the doing something, finding something, treading somewhere mm-hmm. new is Im- immensely exciting for me. Um, right. Ob- obviously, as I get a little bit older and I'm sort of more aware of my personality, mm-hmm. there is now part of my brain that kind of thinks, well, well why is that so important? <laughs> right. Um, but for most of my life, my brain didn't think that. It, right, okay. It's absolutely clear that it was very, very, it was very, very important. Right. Um, and the the, the and obviously there's, there's like social factors in that as well and the, the, the caving period of my life really socialised me into that 
um, finding new finding new stuff is important, okay. and it and it's doable. Um, right. I think I think a lot of people might have the urge to, uh, or a number of people to, to tread where nobody's trodden before, mm-hmm. but it's easy to think that's just that's just an impossible target um, yeah. because so much of the world has been explored, so much has been trodden. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who are treading new ground. If you look at it from the outside, look like they're massively well-funded professional adventurers and mm-hmm. athletes, um, but not not all exploration exploration need be like that. Uh, and it was the experience of caving in the Yorkshire Dales, um, yeah. where the caving club I was in, the um, Leeds University Caving Club, also um, mm-hmm. had a history of finding a lot of new cave passage, mm-hmm. and by a lot I mean miles. You know, miles of new cave, a lot of it walking sized yeah. under the under the Pennines, like uh, an hour's bus ride from Leeds. No, so so when you talk about those social factors, are you, are you talking about other people in that group as well who you drive each other? Or nah, yeah, yeah, and and the belief that it's possible. Well, the belief that it's possible and the belief that's important. Right. Okay. So, so it, yeah, in, in this particular caving club. Um, because it had about about five years before I joined, had discovered immense amounts of passage, and right. it sort of become known in caving uh, circles for the passage that they'd found, right. um, all, all the new caves and cave passages that they'd found. Um, and so there was a huge belief in the club that it was possible, mm-hmm. um, and also a belief that it was important, uh, that it was, that it was really worth doing. Yeah. Uh, so when we got there, to my generation, the kind of sense was. Well, you're really going to have to do something to, um, to to let the you know to give the club its laurels back. Um, right. The the club is supposed to be about cave exploration, yeah. so we were really we were really socialising to you lot get out there and find something, um, right. and we did. We were l- lucky enough to do so, determined enough to do so, yeah. and then there was it was mutually reinforcing because once we started to find find stuff, mm-hmm. we had the belief that we could. So once we had the belief that we could, we would look harder, we would try harder, because right. it actually seemed, it seemed possible. possible. Right. And, and, and that's, that's a huge psychological factor in people doing anything. Mm-hmm. It's called um, agency, this sense that something is possible and you can do it. So you need both, both bits of those. People often don't do stuff because they don't think it's possible, or they think it's possible, but mm-hmm. not for them. But as soon as a person has a belief that something is possible and they could do it, yeah. they'll they'll then organise a lot of their behaviour in order to to get it done. Right. And and, and how, all... how how did that inform your climbing later on? I mean, was that 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 that, that sense of belief is that something that drove you, you know, in the greater ranges and to to do the stuff that you're doing? It... Hugely, yeah. Um, but belief and also permission. Uh, I think there's this, some of my friends who come through to climbing uh, from caving, we've noticed that a lot of climbers who are actually technically a lot better than us um, seem to be, maybe even subconsciously, waiting for some kind of uh, permission or to get to some level where they are good enough to do new routes, where they're by it sometimes is where they, they feel that they need some kind of permission to do new rooms yeah. when of course you don't you just need to find a bit of the cliff that nobody's climbed up before right and set, and set off a bit uh so that that kind of sense of 
we didn't feel we needed any permission, even though when we first started trying to find new routes in Scotland, um, we were, you know, not very high technical standard climbers. Uh, but we were we were actually looking for these new routes. We were looking for, looking at the cliff diagrams and thinking, well, why does nothing go up that bit of cliff? Yeah, let's go let's go and have a look um, and, and see if it's possible. Yes, so a sense of permission and a sense of possibility. Right. Okay. And is it something that is that something that you recognise in other successful climbers as well? I mean. You, or I mean, the, the, or, or for example, you take the most successful climbers that you can you can think of. Do they have those personality traits as well? Do they have that? Yeah. That yeah. Sense the, the, the most successful have those personality traits and often a high degree of technical skill on top of it. Right. Uh, okay. Then you can get the you know the. So let, let me think of somebody like a great uh, British example would be Mick Fowler, mm-hmm. uh, who's got all of those exploratory personality yeah. traits. Uh, he absolutely loves exploring. Yeah. Um, he he also started climbing new routes from very early in his climbing career. Um, his uh, all his trips up to Scotland to climb stuff that people knew were there, but they just hadn't got on before. Right. Um, but Mick also combines it with a with a great technical ability, which is why he's done some absolutely beautiful new routes in the in the Himalaya. Right. Yes, I, okay. I think that combination of person that that personality is there in a lot of successful climbers. Okay. Um. So I, one of the questions that I had at the beginning um, was how you got into become a clinical psychologist, but I think I've, I've I think you've answered your own question in some ways because well, is it kind of that the, the curiosity that drove you on in cave systems and on mountains, is that the same thing that drove you to, I guess, understand the human mind a little bit more? Is it that same <laughs> thing that drives yeah. it together? <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing because of curiosity. And I've got to think of the tendency to be curious about things that are not the things that I'm supposed to be focusing on at that time. Um, <laughs> right. so I, know, I know how I got into psychology. Uh, at school I did, I was doing maths physics and chemistry, hard hard science A-levels. Yeah. Uh, and some of my friends were doing sociology, mm-hmm. um, and they'd leave their sociology textbooks all over the place. Yeah, that was me. Uh, yeah. And there was, <laughs> they, the, the school also took New Society magazine, which is um, sort of like, uh, so, uh, social sciences magazine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was just reading all of those things, and I could, even though I was supposed to be, revising chemistry or something right. and I was just much more curious much more interested in the the sociology and the and the social sciences side of things right uh, but that's that's what drew me into psychology okay uh, and so well I, I I I studied sociology so I can feel that but uh, one of my best friends is a clinical psychologist and he understands an awful lot more about <laughs> pretty much everything than I do um but one of one <laughs> One of the things I do notice is that if if we're out having a beer and you're talking about something, I feel as though he's analysing me. I feel as though <laughs> I feel as though he's just going, "Oh well, he thinks that because of this, because of this." I just wondered if your climbing partners also have that same sense of. <laughs> you'd have you'd have to ask them, really. Um, I think probably. If I'm doing a hard enough climb, enough of my bandwidth is used up by actually trying to climb the thing. Rather, <laughs> I'm not sure I've got a lot of spare intellectual energy for analysing them. Um, <laughs> right. But um, um, yeah, it, 
I think carefully about the people who I climb with, yeah. uh, which, which may be a, a clinical psychologist thing. Because um, I think it, it's all very well doing any kind. Part of the joy of doing these activities is to do do them with somebody who when you, when who adds something to the experience. You know, it's, it's you get a lot more from a, a shared experience of doing these things than, than you do on your own. Yeah, uh, yeah. And doing doing it with the right people is immensely important to me. Do do, do you feel as though um, you? <laughs> I don't know how to put this so in in a way that you can answer honestly. Do do you feel as though you've got a better <laughs> understanding of how what you want from a partner than than other people because of your your job as a clinical psychologist i mean could, could you look at someone who's like oh, I, I do like climbing with this person but i think in this situation you might not i mean do you overanalyze that kind of side of things or do you yeah go with uh, it? it's not like, <laughs> i told you it's, it's going to be it's, hard to answer this <laughs> it's, it's also not like uh, it's not as if for um, high altitude n- new routing, it's not as if there's an enormous pool of uh, people to choose from. So, so you take so what you can get. Being, no. <laughs> being overly fussy wouldn't work. Um, but 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 within that, yeah, no, I do I do think carefully. Um, probably not at a, a psychological level of analysis, but there's there's certain things that are really important. Um, uh, a degree of uh, enthusiasm and psych motivation to get up the thing um, yeah. is really important, and a sense that the people are going to be able to maintain that through the through the difficult times. Um, I think also people who are just uh, interested in the world, because uh, especially on these trips to to uh, the Himalaya, a lot of the time you aren't actually climbing. You know, you're travelling and shopping and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Staying in base camp, um, sure. so if you're if you're just a climbing nerd, um, yeah. and that's you're, you're just with somebody who is just a climbing nerd, it will get a bit dull because you won't be climbing a lot of the time. Right. So it's it's really important to go with somebody who's interested in, in the local people, the nature, oh, yeah, the history of climbing in the area, because there's so much more to be got from these trips yeah. than simply climbing a mountain. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. part of the reason for many of us who keep going back to interesting places in the Himalaya uh-huh. uh, the, the places are really interesting yeah. uh, it's huge experience just just by the time you get to base camp you've experienced a lot for sure um, and I mean you, you're, you're also often away a lot do, do you think that having the do, do the other factors in your life do you have to have all your ducks in a row to be successful when you go away to do these things I mean do, yeah, know, that's that's a really that's that's a really sharp question. Yeah, uh, that I think it's absolutely vital when you go that you've got your, your ducks in a row, um, that you've got the support in in, in your relationships and family uh, situation at home. You've got the financial situation sorted. I've, I've been away on some trips where people have those things um, unraveling for them or not sorted for them before they go. Yeah. Uh, and I think the the, the the strain of being away on a long trip when that kind of stuff isn't working at home, I think is almost intolerable for the person. Right. Uh, nearly always end up going home early. or mm-hmm. so, so I think life has to be sorted at home before you go. Yeah. So you've got the kind of emotional foundations to actually go and do something like that. And I've been 
um, a mixture of skilled and, and lucky at that. Uh, yeah. My my uh, wife partner uh, Donna um, is she is very generous with um, supporting me to go away and do these things, and I know that's at some cost to her. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She's, it's clearly worrying for her when I go away and do these things, and you know, and, and at times lonely. Um, yeah. So I'm hugely grateful for her support yeah. in doing that. Um, on on the other side, I think you you need to have some kind of financial basis to doing these things. Um, mm-hmm. They're not half as expensive as you might think. Because the grant giving system, we, yeah. we mentioned the Montaigne Alpine Club grant, but there's other really good grants like the Mount Everest Foundation, the British Mountaineering Council give good grants. Mm-hmm. So if you choose a good objective, you 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 can get adequately funded so that the the trip becomes no more expensive in fact probably less expensive per week than you know all sorts of comparable ordinary holidays right uh, okay yeah, yeah so yeah. you know per week it probably ends up a lot less than an ordinary holiday and mm-hmm. if you go away there are savings as well you're not burning you're not spending money on petrol food etc et at home sure. so i don't think if you can uh, if, you, if you have got yourself luckily to a financial position where you could afford an annual holiday yeah, um, yeah. abroad, you could afford to go on one of these trips okay. with, with you if you worked hard with, with getting the right kind of grants. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, a surprising number of people who do do a lot of uh, Himalayan climbing are in the regular nine to five type employment yeah. uh, rather than rather than guides or professional clients. There's almost two strategies. You've got to go seems to me you've got to go properly one way or the other. Yeah. You can either be a sort of mountain professional, mm-hmm. um, which works in terms of you get the, the fitness and the the skills and all that kind of thing. Um, the trouble with that is guiding that kind of work is, is arduous so it can actually sap the energy to go away on yeah. on these yeah. trips there's another big group of people who are all in as i think regular nine to five employment mm-hmm. and go away on a trip I, I don't go on a big trip every year um okay. work wouldn't tolerate it um, <laughs> sure. so i go away every two years yeah uh, okay for, for about five five or six weeks but that that that, that strategy kind of works having regular employment um, obviously, you have to negotiate well with your employee, yeah. uh, employer. Yeah. And I, I've been working, I work for Teesesk and Weir Valley's NHS Trust, mm-hmm. um, and I've worked for them for 30 or so years now, uh, and they've been very generous in allowing me to go away, to, to bunch all my leave together and yeah. go away on these trips every um, every couple of years. Sure. But I, I can kind of organise my clinical work um, so that I don't take on new patients um, for that period of time. Right. Do, do do you do you find that the, the the those trips away can go back and inform you in your job? You know, do do you learn things in your job that you in in, in the climbing that you can then put back into your job into your clients, or is it a very different area that you specialise in? No, I mean they're, they're very o- overlapping. Um, mm-hmm. I the the I've worked in different clinical areas. The clinical area that I work in at the moment is adult mental health services. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mostly work with people who are experiencing a huge amount of emotional instability in their lives, mm-hmm. often as a result of trauma uh, in, mm-hmm. their, in their earlier lives. Yeah. Um, I work predominantly with people who are uh, feeling suicidal, at risk of suicide, or um, at risk of harming themselves mm-hmm. one way or the other. Um, so, so there's an immense carryover uh, 
between work and, and, and climbing in terms of both a lot of the conversations I'm having with myself, with other people, with patients are about how we keep on doing the things that, that we value in the yeah. presence of very strong emotions. Right. Those might be different emotions at different times. So obviously on a, on a climb, that emotion might be fear. Yeah. Uh, or boredom uh, at times. Right, uh, okay. How do you persist yeah. uh, in, in your goal? How do you keep your goal in mind? Because mm-hmm. um, often when your um, mind's really uh, hijacked by these strong emotions, it, it'll temporarily feel like your goal is not important. Yeah. Even as soon as you're out of that emotional state, you think, ah, that goal was really important. Why did I bail? Um, yeah, okay. But, the same is very true of people I'm working with on a day-to-day basis who are wanting to, say, maintain good relationships, mm-hmm. um, but anger keeps bubbling up and they keep losing their relationships uh, due to an angry outburst that they regret uh, yeah. 10 minutes after it's finished. Sure. So that how to persist with goals that are important to us in the presence of strong emotions is, is big, in both, big in both areas. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Two more questions. Um, how... How has your philosophy changed over the years? I, I don't want to guesstimate your age, you, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm fifty-three. Fifty-three. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. How how was how has your philosophy in terms of kind of climbing or you know your outlook changed over the years? Is are you more risk averse or are you less risk averse? Do you find your focus in some you know one way rather than yeah. a more scattered approach? What? Um. Mm, that's a really good question. Uh, I am much more conscious of the risks. Um, I've looked at the statistics. I've almost looked at the sort of the, the public health side of um, mountaineering, mm-hmm. and it's not good. The statistics are terrible, actually. Um, and I think we are. I think at times the alpine climbing community, I think we're blind to that or defended against it. I don't think we look at it necessarily with clear sight, um, that, that, that degree of risk. So that, that's something that's changed in me. Um, I haven't, so I have changed my behavior a little bit in relation to that. And, um, sorry, are we we talking, are we talking about the, the, the high risk of injury and and that kind of, the high risk of getting killed? Yeah. Uh, is the, I can't remember the, the particular paper, but there was a follow-up done of a group of elite uh, mountaineers, European mountaineers, mm-hmm. um, who were followed up from, I think it was the, the 60s. Uh, uh, and the risk of dying in a mountain accident prematurely was yeah. about 20%. Right, okay. That's, That's not um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I think back to the group of people who, when... Uh, Paul Fig and I were nominated for the PLA Door in 2011. Mm-hmm. I think back to the group of about 10, 11 alpinists who assembled in Chamonix for that. Yeah. Uh, two of whom are now dead, killed right. in the mountains. So that is something I really want to think about very clearly. Um, yeah. And I have some thoughts about uh, how how to manage that. And I think one of that is the amount of time in glaciated mountain terrain. I think the risk is proportional to the amount of time you spend there. Right. Of course, of course, this, this might be my own defence. Um, <laughs> but like, like a lot of British, we haven't got any glaciated mountains here, so we're not spending an enormous amount of time in glaciated mountain terrain. And the reason it's 
like you say, these mountain terrain is dangerous. There's, there's just so many unpredictable things, like seracs fall on you, you fall in um, crevasses. Uh, the environment's just a lot more dynamic. There's rockfall, avalanche, yeah. it, all of that kind of thing, which is normally what kills people. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of, I notice a lot of British climbers now are not go on their trips. So mm-hmm. go and climb something in the glaciated mountain range once a year or once every two years, yeah. but aren't spending a lot of time between times in those environments. Sure. So that uh, developing their skills, keeping fit on non-snowy British hills yeah. uh, or uh, Scotland in winter, which although it's snowy, is just hasn't got all the risks of glaciated mountains. Yeah. So that's my kind of my defence. And don't spend so much time in glaciated mountains. <laughs> okay. But I think there's also things about the kind of routes that you choose. If you choose um, prominent features, ridges, buttresses, those kind of things, mm-hmm. that's a lot safer than trying to climb up couloirs and faces and uh, various things that are, become natural fall lines. Right. Right. That, that's one. Yeah. That's one way my philosophy has changed. Um, yeah. So, hopefully, more more thoughtful uh, about about risk. Um, and secondly, you, I think you, I'm I'm aware of uh, a greater range of different. It it, it doesn't. I, I need I need to more consciously keep my motivation alive. Mm-hmm. Where I think as we we're talking about before it just arose absolutely naturally and spontaneously in me um i have to do some work to keep focused on 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 uh big climbing goals now right might distract me okay well recognizing that it's still an important thing for you to Uh, absolutely yeah for, for you to lead a fulfilling life as well um last question that relates to this what what advice would you give to a a younger you Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't change an awful lot, uh, which is, that's that's, that's (laughs) my, I I wouldn't change an awful lot. Um, I took a lot of risks uh, and I'd want a younger, I mean, obviously I got away with it, but I'd want a younger me not to take quite so many. Um, I'd, wanting that person to think a little bit more about the uh the the, the costs and benefits yeah of yeah. of some of that um okay. i would i would have started uh exercising in a more i mean early in my career i just uh just climbed or caves i didn't really do much um mm. uh, systematic exercise i would have done more of that right. would have been more organized about keeping fit in a more effective way. Right, okay. Um, yeah, I think that would be the, those would be the main things. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, Malcolm, thank you so much for your time. It's yeah, It's been just an absolutely fascinating uh, chat. So I, I really appreciate what you've, what you've brought to it. And um, oh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. I, <laughs> I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. And I, I think the idea of... Uh, Having a, 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 a further fast. I mean, I love podcasts. I think mm-hmm. they're just they're, they're brilliant. You manage to have these kind of conversations, um, yeah. and uh, there's, there's so many good podcasts uh, around. Uh, uh, yet that we haven't got one like this in the UK at the moment. So uh, 
it's, it's, this is this is great. These long form conversations are, are just the way forward. I think. Yeah. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. And and I wish you the best of luck in India, whichever whichever peak you climb. Whichever peak we climb. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll let you all know which peak we're actually going for. Yeah. Let, let, let us know. It might make it for this podcast. If not, we'll stick it in the next one. So. Um... <laughs> Thank you. <Dan. laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Daniel. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. See, I told you it would be an interesting one. Massive thanks to Malcolm for spending his time with us. Um, just really interesting chat. Really nice bloke. So big thanks to Malcolm um, and a massive thanks to everyone who's listening in as well. We've got a really good one set up for next month. It comes out on the last Sunday of every month. And uh, yeah, listen in. <laughs>